Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader, and we're doing another Blue Collar Bible Scholar. Today we're discussing eschatology. Uh, Once again, the purpose for all of these videos is to simply give you a springboard so you can go learn more on your own. Uh, But it's hard to just wade into the ocean of theology and biblical languages and Bible commentaries and peer-reviewed journal articles. It's overwhelming. And so my goal is to just create a lot of good jumping-off points so you can have a good general picture of here's what the the lay of the land is before you just start wading into it. I have so many mixed metaphors. Um, but my goal, though, is that you learn to fish, not not get a fish. No fish here, just fishing poles. Uh, so, hence the, the blue-collar uh, Bible scholar. I am an electrician, but also the goal is that anybody, no matter your level of formal education and how proper you can speak, can, can learn these deeper, more complicated Bible things. You just come at it slow, methodical, take your time, learn little bits here and there, and uh, just be moving in the right direction, that's all. So, I overlooked uh, a large area of theology when I did my theology overview um, video. It's called, What is Theology? And I, I missed it, man. Eschatology is one of the ones I should have mentioned. It is one of the fields of theology. It's not as big or as widely written about as the other areas are, but the people that do write about it are super into it. And, um, it's, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And by studying eschatology, by studying the book of Revelation and some of the other passages, it's really fascinating, and you wind up having to learn random bits of Greek or Hebrew or uh, first century military history of Rome or Greece. Like, it's awesome that you are, well, not first century Greek. Anyway, um, you get to learn a lot of other things trying to make sense of uh, these historical and uh, you know, these really prophetic vision-based books of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's really cool. So you wind up learning a lot of extra stuff by studying what is kind of one focused thing. It's, it's really neat. I don't think it's an accident. Uh, God, God doesn't do stuff that clever accidentally. He doesn't do anything accidentally. Um, all right. So before we move into this too far, eschatology, the word comes from the Greek eschatos and logos. It is a long O sound. The, the letter Omicron in Greek makes a O sound, so it's Logos, not any other pronunciation, Logos. So, the word eschatology comes from eschatos, Logos, eschatos being last things, or the, the end of, and uh, Logos being an idea, an arrangement of ideas, or a, a word or message, or a logic, that's where we get the word logic from, and the... Uh, When combined in a word, it means the study of, typically. So the study of and times are the last things. Eschatology. Eschatos Logos. Now, before we move on, I've got uh, a few caveats to make. These are things we are going to assume true as we move forward, and I'm not going to constantly reference them or or hedge what I say. We're going to assume that these things are true. And then I've got two ground rules that I use really for all Bible study. But you can find yourself 
breaking them or bending them quite a bit when you're doing end times study or looking at a lot of symbolism and prophecy, and you won't notice that you kind of started bending your own rules. And there's not a catch, because it is eschatology. There's not really a way to become a heretic by not understanding a Bible verse right. Jesus is God. And you have that backdrop, so as you look at a Bible verse, you start going, maybe he really meant X, Y, Z. You always have that catch of, well, I mean, if you break one of the rules, you run into, well, would that mean Jesus isn't God? So I, I can't read the verse that way. It's got to be whatever. Anyway, it'll make more sense as I get to it. Now, caveats. It is, uh, it is assumed that you are on the right team, that you are ready, and we're going to assume that you're chill. Uh, so you can get pretty heated and pretty dynamic about, about understanding of these passages. You, the general you, everyone can be kind of heated about this. But it's, it's understood that this is all in the, its proper context. Um, so on the right team, ready and chill. On the right team, the most important part of the book of Revelation is at the very end. Uh, and lo, I'm coming quickly. Uh, come, Lord Jesus, come, right? Jesus is coming back and uh, our team wins in the end. God wins. Be on the right team because only one of them is going to win at the end of the game. And it's Jesus' team. So whatever team he's on, I'm on that team. You should be on that team. That's, uh, that's caveat one. So we're all assuming, yes, we know Jesus wins in the end. We're looking at all of the other stuff because it's fascinating. And it's, it's awesome and it's interesting and it's wonderful. And maybe, maybe you can peek into the future a little bit. I don't know. Maybe you can make sense of uh, some of the crazy politics going on in the world stage. I don't know, but let's dig and find out. Yes, we all know Jesus wins at the end. That's not a reason not to look at it. This stuff is awesome. Uh, It's assumed Jesus wins in the end. I I know that. Um, The other thing is be ready. As you look at all of the places where Paul talks about the last things or where Jesus is giving a parable of the ten virgins... The end answer is you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when the master will return. So stay busy until he gets back. The bumper sticker, right? Jesus is coming. Look busy. Um, Jesus is coming. Stay busy, right? You need to be about your father's work every day, all day, every day. So the the place of the Christian is this wonderful juxtaposition um, of putting against of things. You have to balance these two opposite things. I have to live like today is the last day I have because Jesus is coming. And I have to live like I am going to live the rest of my life because Jesus is coming and he's been coming for about 2,000 years now. Um, Like from the word go, right? The apostles are still staring up in the sky. Who said he was coming back? Is he back yet? No, no, he's not. Easy, guys, easy. Act like he's coming tomorrow, later today. That's how you act, the urgency and the passion you should have for things. And also, relax a little bit, okay? Build up some savings, buy a house, put money in your 401k, plan for the long game. It'll be all right. Uh, you got to do both. Um, so, you have to, you've got to be on the right team. You have to be ready at all times. And you got to be chill. The study of end times is unlike any other study in the Bible. You almost can't be wrong. Almost. 
given the the obvious sort of provisos, right? The the dead in Christ shall rise first. Jesus is coming back. He's going to resurrect the dead and hold everyone to account and uh, judge the quick and the dead. Quick is an old school word for alive, right? The quick and the dead. Um, the living and the dead. Jesus is going to bring all of mankind to judgment and uh, kind of wrap everything up in a nice bow at the end of history. And then all of the saints can move on into the new heaven and new earth and live in New Jerusalem and party. Have fun at the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's going to be great. It's going to be great, you guys. So, so chill. Everything outside of those facts is completely fluid. You're dealing with nothing but symbolism, and it's a completely indefinite time frame. Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, only the Father. So chill out. Um, Yeah, we're going to peek at it. It doesn't mean don't try. Uh, There are plenty of things that mankind has discovered and accomplished simply by trying and figuring it out and having fun with it. Uh, Just relax. But the whole point, though, is be chill, okay? It doesn't matter if you're pre-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, whatever, trib, nonsense, predator, whole. It's fine, guys. It's fine. Just chill. Discuss. You can discuss animatedly. I've got a video on here that I think arguing is good. Okay, uh, but just remember at the end of the day, though, it'd be chill. We don't know. Um, wisest Bible teacher I ever had, Mr. Pelfrey. I don't know, and neither does anybody else. That applies to a lot of revelation. So you're making your best guess. You can make a. You can tighten up your case for why you believe what you believe, certainly. And then remember that you're still probably wrong, and so is the guy you're arguing with. Uh, but it's good to argue, and it's good to press each other, and that's how we make each other stronger, and that's how we grow as uh, Christians and men and Christian men. It's awesome. So, those are the caveats, right? It's important that we're going to assume, yes, we know we're we're chill, um, even though we get animated or really precise or lock up what sounds to be an ironclad case. We're chill. We know it it may all be wrong. I don't know. Uh, Maybe all of the scholars are wrong about the date of Antiochus III, what's Epiphanes, or, um, you know, when exactly Nero did what, to make him the antichrist of whatever it we don't know okay so just stay chill about it um we are also going to remember that we need to be ready this doesn't excuse us um i it's awesome that you have that much faith but you got to understand your faith wasn't in jesus when you sold your house and liquidated all of your assets because he's coming tomorrow that's not that's not a thing um your your faith was in your specific interpretation of the Bible, not in your uh, in your Savior. That's different. It's important not to conflate those. So, but be ready, right? You need to be out uh, preaching, helping the poor and the orphan and widow, and uh, sharing the Word of God and all the good stuff. All the good stuff, guys. Do that. Be ready, and make sure you're on the right team. On Team Jesus, Team Obedience. It's the only team. This guy. <clears throat> now. With all the fun stuff, all the boring stuff over, we're going to move towards the text. I've got two rules that I always apply with every text. It's always very important. You have to be honest and you have to be consistent, okay? Honesty and consistency. You have to be honest with yourself and with the text. It can get blurry when you spend hours staring at the same five verses. Honesty. Here's what I mean. You can learn a lot of extra information that can change what a passage means or how a passage communicates what it communicates. 
you have to always keep in mind some things. John wrote this to people in history for a reason. So some part of this book, at least some part of it, was for the people that that heard it. And uh, in addition to being historically honest, right, you also have to be grammatically honest. You have to be honest with the text. You can't go, well, because I know a random piece of history information, when it says uh, lukewarm, what it actually means is really hot. No. says lukewarm. The word means something that is neither hot nor cold at room temperature. Um, so there's a limit. You have to make sure that you don't start... Because you can get... You can, the lines get blurry, especially with all the symbolism and all the different word pictures and stuff. You, you've got to always stay grounded in what does the actual grammar and words mean together, which can be tricky because uh, the, the Greek and the grammar for Revelations is a little choppy. A lot choppy. And uh, you also have to be honest historically to remember, well, they wouldn't have known about this happening yet. Or, if I understand the book of Revelation this way, it means that it really was worthless for anybody in the first century to read it. Why did we get it then? Why didn't God wait till a little later to release it till it was a little more relevant or something? Why, why give the confusion, right? So, this, at some level, it has to be useful for the people that got it initially and for us today. And you have to be honest with that historical context. You also have to be honest with the, uh, the grammatical context of how words are used and how the, the sentences link together to, to make ideas. You can't interpret something such that it means the opposite of what it actually says at, at face value. Uh, it can mean something slightly different, but it, can, it always has to stay within that, uh, that sort of range of meaning. So if you have to be honest. You have to be consistent now. Consistency means if you take, uh, just as an example, let's say you interpret the one of the, they've got seven scrolls, right? Or the seven seals on the scroll. So you have a certain way you interpret this one seal based on the word seal, on the Greek word seal or whatever. Oh, well, it's also used in this other manuscript that does the thing. So we know that this seal has to do with such and such. Okay, you now have to do that for every seal because they all have that word seal in common. And so they're all going to bring that context. You have to be consistent. You can't decide that this one's different. And, well, it doesn't fit seal number two, so I'll just throw it aside for seal two. But then we're back for seal three because it fits that way. No, you've got to be consistent. If they if they match the same criteria and you decide that this is symbolism and the other one that matches the same criteria, go, well, that's literal because I like it or I want Putin to be the Antichrist or whatever you're doing. Um, that's fine, but now you have to take this and use that same, uh, measure or rule over here and go, well, this also is literal or they're both symbolic. If the two texts are related, if they, if they, they match or they meet the same criteria that you're, um, that you're looking at, you have to be consistent. All right. So if you're looking at one of the seals or one of the, the, uh, the goblets that are th- poured out in judgment or the uh, one of the seven lampstands or the seven churches, right? If you have to understand. Uh, so if the churches are written for the people of that day, the actual geographic churches, cool, every church has to be that way then. If, if your understanding is that all of these churches are just the church in Smyrna, in Laodicea, in Ephesus, 
then every one of those has to only be to the ancient historical church because you have to be consistent. You can't go, well, Laodicea is to the church presently. Okay, if you want to take them symbolically as church ages and our modern church ages of Laodicea and all of the other church ages of the different churches, that's fine, but you have to do all of them that way. And just to be consistent as you're going through. Otherwise, it's just madness. It's madness. You become the standard of metric of what's going on. Instead of trying to find a pattern or draw out information in the text and go, oh, these things consistently line up this way, you have to be consistent about it. Uh, Otherwise, yeah, you're just making it up. You're like, oh, I like this because it sounds like Putin's the Antichrist, so I'll I'll pick that one. Uh, But this one's symbolic because I don't make any sense of it. Oh, and this one's to the church age because I think... Yeah, that's right. The modern church is too rich and spoiled. So Laodicea is talking about the modern church. But uh, Ephesus was chill, so they can get their letter written to them in time. No, you have to be consistent. You have to find a standard metric or rule as as you're going through the scripture. Uh, If you're matching everything to Roman military history, then match everything to Roman military history or whatever you're you're doing as you do. It's a big ocean. And um, no matter what, you're just going to jump into some area of the pool and just flounder a little bit till you start finding things and, and putting pieces together and figuring it out. It's a big jigsaw puzzle, and uh, you, you're not always going to have all the, the picture beforehand. You just have to go, oh, well, this is an edge, and I've got 35 edges, and none of them fit each other, and none of them are even the same color scheme. So we'll just keep collecting edge pieces till something goes together. All right, so uh, that's how we go. Now, let's talk about the book of Revelation. It is probably a solid half of all eschatology studies. It's not the only passage. I'll, I'll list off a couple here later on. Um, but um, Revelation's the big, the big dog. He's the big one that uh, everybody knows about and likes to talk about. So there are four main ways to look at Revelation. These are the four biggest camps. Everybody that studies Revelation is a mix of some kind of percentage mix of these four somewhere. There'll there'll be a mix of one or two, uh, depending on the part of the book that you're reading. They'll be usually, they'll have a a reason, they'll have a logic, a consistency that says when things are or are not doing what they're doing. Um, So, we'll just go through them from the top. I'm going to go through all of them, give you one sentence about what they are, and then I'll go back through and give a little more on each of the different ways to look at it. Now, um, I did pull all of this from a gentleman named Steve Gregg. He has a Revelation commentary, uh, Revelation, Four Views, by Steve Gregg. And he lays, uh, he does an entire commentary of the entire book. He does a commentary of the entire book of Revelation. And uh, it is singular, by the way. It's not Revelations. It is the Revelation of John. Revelation. Or it's the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, but it's always called the revelation of John. That's all apocalypse means, by the way, is an uncovering, something that's been revealed. Revelation. The uh, Armageddon is the word that's talking about the Valley of Megiddo and the the battle that happens there. All right, side side tangent. All right, first view, preterist. These people believe the entire book of Revelation has already been fulfilled uh, specifically by 70 AD, although some may argue for other uh, characters in history, uh, most of the preterists say 70 AD. And they believe all of it's already been fulfilled, none of it is waiting. Now, the historicist view is nobody really adheres to it anymore. A lot of the early Protestants did, 
And apparently the seven-day Adventist, this is the one that they teach. Uh, it's also alternately called the dispensational view. The idea is that all of Revelation refers to the entirety of the history of the church from the start of the early church, all the way, the apostles and the start of the church, all the way up through to the end of the age. And then the question becomes, where in Revelation is our timeline as it travels from, the Revelation would be like a, a prophetic summary of the entire history of the church. And then trying to figure out where are we in the timeline of Revelation, because that is the timeline of, of history. And everybody winds up putting their own... So the reason it, it kind of fell out of favor is everybody winds up putting their own church as the church of Laodicea, as the last cycle in the age of the church where Jesus is going to come back any minute. So anytime you see an old report of like, Jesus is coming back in five days or one year, Jesus is coming, we use our biblical numberology to figure out when he's coming, the day, date, and time. Because Jesus encoded it in the Roman lunar calendar months. All right, those guys, historicists. That's the, that's the word for it. History, Revelation represents history. Oh, preterist, uh, the word comes from Latin, preter, the things before or uh, old or uh, past, preterist. All right, futurist, future, right? Easy stuff. These are the uh, the Tim LaHaye, the uh, Left Behind series kind of stuff, uh, Dr. David Jeremiah. Anybody who's a radio preacher, they're, they're all futurists. They all believe that Revelation is talking about stuff that's going to happen, and they're looking for the mark of the beast. They're doing all kinds of things. Even the assumption that Revelation is about the future is its own camp, because the preterists believe it's already been fulfilled. The historicists believe only part of it is about the future. The other part has already been fulfilled. Uh, so, the futurists, they're the ones looking for pre-millennium, post-millennium, uh, tribulation, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, all those things. And then uh, an idealist. An idealist is the, the last group. This is the guy who's got the easiest time of it. He says, look guys, none of it's real. It's all symbolism and allegory about the Christian walk or about church or about the spiritual battles going on right now that we can't see or understand. So the idealist says is he's not looking for any world current events. He's looking at it as a here is the spiritual factors going on at play in different interpersonal events or different events between nations. Here's the, the spiritual picture. Here's the idea picture. It's like um, John Bunyan wrote a, a good book called Pilgrim's Progress. I, I genuinely couldn't remember the name for a second. It's like Pilgrim's Progress where everything clearly represents some metaphysical element and how they interact. Um, but they're interacting as you know anthropomorphic characters that, that speak and do things. So uh, if you haven't read it, Pilgrim's Progress is a, it's a good read. It's a really simple, obvious allegory of the Christian walk. And it's a good read. The guy wrote it when he was in prison, too, which is it's pretty champ. Uh, there are some really good illustrations for uh, salvation and uh, how the, the works of the, the law compare to the forgiveness that is in Christ and stuff. There's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot of fun imagery. 
And then, uh, the other thing you have to deal with is the millennium. At the end of the book of Revelation, there's a thousand-year reign of Christ. So, um, that's where the pre-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial, whatever, uh, post-millennial, the the guys who believe the Bible's about the future, that's where they argue about, does this thousand-year reign of Christ happen, and then Satan is released, and we're raining bowls of fire, and angels are smiting a third of the population, and rockets are coming out of the sky or whatever, and then Jesus comes back and ends everything. Or, does everything happen, and then Jesus reigns for a thousand years? Um, but then it's confusing, because like, why would he only reign for a thousand years? I thought we had eternity. What's the deal, bro? Um, but so that's, what you. what is it you're doing with the millennium? How does that fit in? Uh, the other group is an amillennial, or uh, inaugural millennial, or, um, what was it, fulfilled millennial or something? Basically, the view is the millennium, the thousand years, the thousand year reign of Christ, is a reference to the church. We are the kingdom of God in this world. Christ reigns in this world in us, through us, over us. We are all subjects of the king. And we, uh, we kind of embody his kingdom here on earth right now. So in that sense, Jesus Christ is reigning currently, and the thousand, the clean 1,000 number, uh, it worked really well until we passed more than 1,000 years after Jesus. Now we're coming up on two, 2,000 years. I don't know. I'm just going to throw a big shrug. I don't know. Um, but that's the idea, though, that the church, the 1,000 years is just metaphorical for forever or a really long time. And that the, the millennium just refers to the church age, and this is how Christ has chosen to redeem mankind through Jesus and his church. Uh, So now, let's get back to it. So, the preterist view can be really hardcore. I have heard of preterists that do not believe Jesus Christ is coming back. That this church age, life as we know it right now, is just going to continue forever. Forever. And you just, you have to be a Christian, and you have to get saved, and then God deals with everything after you're dead. That's it. Um, And all the book of Revelation has been completely fulfilled. Typically, the preterists look to 70 AD, when Jerusalem is overthrown and successfully sieged by the Romans. They They were hardcore about it. And then they ripped down the temple. When Jesus says not one brick will be laid on top of another after it's destroyed... The Romans, when they built the temple, they put gold between the bricks as like mortar and just to show how fancy they were. So when the Roman soldiers destroyed and looted the temple, they took the gold from between the bricks uh, when they were ripping it down and uh, wrecking everything. It was pretty crazy. So that's the, the preterist says this was the abomination of desolation. And they've got some verses that they point to to show what Jesus is talking about. The book of Revelations is replete with saying, this is coming to happen soon. This is going to happen very quickly. Uh, But then you start arguing as a preterist about, you have to have the book of Revelation dated before 70 AD, not at 96 AD when most people think John wrote the book of Revelation. It's a big, I don't know, man, just... 
jump into the ocean and swim, start looking at what makes the most sense to you and do your best, right? That's all we can do. Now, the historicist view, uh, people don't hold to it anymore, like I said, because it usually winds up being that your generation is the one where Jesus is coming back. And then it just doesn't pan out. People die of old age, and uh, they're just sick of so many crying wolf scenarios. Nobody listens anymore. Uh, So that's the historicist view. I don't know what just happened. My phone died. Probably because it overheated a little bit or something. Uh, It said lost connection to whatever, and then closed. So... We're talking about historicists. A lot of the early Protestant Reformation guys were uh, historicists. Um, but like I said, it's fallen out of vogue recently. That everybody was The historicists all said the Pope is the Antichrist. A lot of people nowadays still adhere to Pope is the Antichrist. I don't know. John says there are many Antichrists. So obviously this wouldn't be a bad one eventually. But anybody who opposes Christ is anti-Christ. Anti-against Christ. Christ. The man himself big guy. Now, the Futurist, that's the, the Tim LaHaye, the Left Behind series, the, the Tribulation, the Rapture. These are the guys looking for the, these are the guys looking in the newspaper. These are the guys looking at, at current world events. They're Futurists. They believe that some part or all of the book of Revelation hasn't been fulfilled yet. Uh, the weakness here, obviously, is that why did John write it in the first century to believers? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, what good would it do any of them? They'd have to wait more than, now we know, more than 2,000 years before any of it happened. Uh, and that's that's a, a long time and a lot of book writing for, we win at the end, guys. And, you know, a couple of letters, he could have uh, just sent the letters to churches on their own. The first seven uh, chapters are letters to different churches. It's good stuff. Definitely read it if you haven't read it already. It might be the first chapter or so, and then jumps into it. Anyway, um, now, that's the futurist, though, right? You're looking at current world events. Revelation predicts the future. That's not the default position. That's a position you do not necessarily have to believe in. It is not necessarily true that Revelation deals with the future. Look into the other views. Look into the other ideologies and mindsets behind how to approach the book of Revelation to just know that they're out there. You can fully believe the book of Revelation predicts the future, but no, there's a lot more going on. And then uh, the idealist view, it becomes kind of difficult, though, because I feel like it robs the book of its power. Uh, The idealist view is just that everything's symbolism, and none of it really relates to real events. Uh, Which, it, it, it works on some levels, but then you wind up with, the trouble that when you look at the Old Testament prophecy, it looks almost exactly like Revelation and all of those things had real world corresponding events most scholars fully believe the goat with the little horn that controls the big goat in Daniel, I forget where exactly his his vision is happening is Alexander the Great running around overcoming stuff, the the bold he-goat or whatever, controlled by a little horn. That's Alexander the Great controlling the Greeks and taking over a good chunk of the world. There's a lot of stuff that fits with that. Everybody looks at those events and the prophecy and goes, yep, there it is. Um, 
And so it doesn't match then to say, well, all of it's symbolism and none of it corresponds to anything. And so that's why everybody is a little bit of all of them. You're finding a consistent way to look at the Old Testament and make it match the New Testament in uh, Revelation. Because prophecy is really just Revelation as far as prophetic books in the New Testament. Now, there are other prophetic passages. So I'm going to... Yeah, I'll, I'll get into that now, I guess. So the other passages talk about a lot of stuff. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Apparently those guys were really consumed with the end of the world. They had people who just quit working and uh, quit making money because they were like, the world's going to end. Why? Why? And Paul's like, no, you get your butt back to work, guys. Don't you know? You're not going to miss it. There was uh, that's right. There were some people saying, "Oh, you've missed his coming." Jesus came back, and you missed it. Sorry, guys. And uh, they were starting to freak out. And he says, "Look, you're not going to miss it, guys. You'll know. Oh, you'll know." So they Christians have thought they're in the end times forever, and in a way, we are in the end times because you're supposed to live like it's the end times anyway. Christ is coming back, and you need to be busy. You need to be about your Father's work, and uh, stay ready. Stay on the right team. The other passage is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, again, he's talking about the resurrection specifically, the second resurrection, and we get a little more peek into what's going on, a little better peek into what uh, what's happening. Um, but we got a lot of other throwaway lines, like the, the white throne judgment, um, Paul says, do you not know you'll, we will judge angels? Um, uh, another place, Paul's talking about having your works judged by being burned with fire, the way you would build a building, and if it's hay, stubble, or straw, or the uh, build with uh, fine metals and silver and gold and steel. Like, I don't I don't know what that means or how it fits, but it's in there somewhere. It's something you got to deal with. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 is the other big one. Jesus himself predicts, and he gives this big, long prediction, um, pardon me, about what most people believe to be 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Just looking at the history of that after having read Matthew 25, there's a lot of stuff that matches up with the way those things come together. Uh, The other place is Daniel. Uh, It starts in like uh, chapter 8 to 12, uh, but it's all over the place. There's a passage where it mentions 70 weeks and gives a time, times, and half a time, and a lot of people like trying to do math to figure all that out. Um, A lot of Daniel was fulfilled in the coming of the church. His uh, vision about a giant statue made out of different materials, and the feet are like clay mixed with iron, and then a big rock comes and smashes it. It's pretty clear that those are the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, and all of that's crushed by the giant rock of the church, the empire of Christ in the world, the kingdom of God. And so that's... But... It's not 100%. We don't know. It's all symbolism. But it, that's the one we have that fits the best. Uh, oh, and then uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, um, Peter mentions end of the world stuff. He compares the end of the world, the coming age, to the age of Noah, where everybody's chill. They didn't know it was going to hit them. They're still eating and drinking and being merry and uh, giving and taking in marriage. And then, bam, all of a sudden, right, they get hit. So in all those passages... Uh, Yes, they could already be fulfilled already, and we don't know. Or maybe none of it's fulfilled yet, and we're still all waiting. So that's the issue with prophecy. 
there's a one concept called Mountain Peak Prophecy. And because when somebody writes a book of the Bible, it's generally presumed it had to be useful for the people that got the book written to them. Else, why else would you have the book? So Mountain Peak Prophecy is when you look at, like, Isaiah, for example, and he predicts Jesus. And then there are a lot of stuff that... So he's, he's prophesying into the situation going on in front of him. And a lot of the stuff he's prophesying, there's small parts of it that haven't happened or didn't happen yet or didn't really happen the way that you thought they should if you look at the, the history outside of Isaiah to see how things panned out right after he prophesied. He keeps missing stuff. And then Jesus comes and hits on all cylinders. It's called Mountain Peak Prophecy. If I'm looking at two mountains, one is taller than the other mountain. I can, That's right. So one is taller than the other mountain. Looking at it, you see both mountains. And they, if you're not able to tell the distance, they look like they're right on top of each other. But if you turn sideways, there could be a lot of distance between those mountains you just can't see. But you're only looking at one perspective. So when the prophet sees what God wants him to see, and he's seeing into the future, or seeing a vision, or God's giving him words, however that all plays out, he sees both events overlapped as kind of the same event, right? Because God repeats things through time because humans are dumb, and they need stuff repeated, so we remember it. So he has Christ lived out as a type. This is called typology as a type in Isaac, in Jacob, in uh, all of these different people, David becomes a type of Christ for other other aspects of Jesus' ministry and kingship. The the high priest Melchizedek back in it becomes a type of Christ in the the Old Testament in Genesis. All of these people are repeating little parts of the Christ story before it all gets put together right at the end. And Isaiah has little parts of that Christ story and he sees the full Christ story and then like 75% of it applies to where he's at right now. So Mountain Peak Prophecy. I see both peaks, both historical events we're talking about, and I'm just not aware that there's, you know, thousands of miles or hundreds of thousands of years in between them. Thousands, hundreds, or thousands of years. Anyway, so you have that going on as you're reading Revelation, as you're reading Matthew. Um think about it in your own mind. If you find not all of it fits 70 AD so neatly and you're not satisfied, God repeats a lot of stuff through history. Maybe there are parts that have yet to be fulfilled that's going to map to uh, that that idea. The other thing is the reason prophecy is so weird. Why can't God just speak plainly, right? Why is it we got to have crazy pictures about guys coming out of the ocean, big monsters with a hundred billion horns and a wound on his head that was healed but isn't healed anymore, or it looks like it wasn't healed but he's fine, he came back from the dead maybe, and why can't God just be like, look, it's an it's an undead cyborg Mikhail Gorbachev that's going to rise up out of the ocean and control the United Soviet South America to rule the world. And uh, he's going to do all that with the support of the Canadians. Why can't God just say that? The simple answer is, how do you predict the future to someone without polluting the timeline? Science fiction has given us a wonderful vocabulary now to talk about timelines and the way time moves and how humans 
live in this time, those ideas, that vocabulary didn't really exist, um, at least in the way we understand it uh, back then. Not that people weren't dumb or didn't understand it, they just, they didn't have time. They were fighting to live. They didn't have time to write crazy science fiction. Uh, Some people did very early. Science fiction, if you look at it, starts way early, way earlier than you'd think. And, uh, like, alchemist early. Like, arguably, Leonardo da Vinci was a sci-fi author, kind of early. Uh, but, they just hadn't thought about making time machines yet, until H.G. Wells rolls around, and he's like, I got you guys. And odds are, he wasn't the first person to think about it and play around with it. But anyway, that's the idea. If I want to tell you what the future is, but I don't want you, like Biff, to run around with a book and make yourself a millionaire. All all of a sudden, I've changed the future I told you about. So, A, you can say I'm a liar, and B, I am a liar because I changed the future. I told you what was going to happen, and it's not what was going to happen because I told you about it. How do you do that? You have to disguise it. You have to tell the future in a way that isn't going to alter the future, so what you say is accurate and will come to pass, and it's not going to allow someone to take advantage, an unfair advantage, of the future knowledge. Uh, except for getting right with Jesus. That's the best unfair advantage ever. And so, it's important to understand, uh, I firmly believe, the reason God made all of this so mystical and so hard to understand is because it's you can't tell somebody the future without changing the future. You know, if I say Russia is going to get so big, it'll take over the world. Well, now nobody's going to let Russia do anything. It's going to crush it. Assuming I'm a reliable source for telling the future, right? Um, or they're going to they're going to wait. And the moment they hear about that undead Mikhail Gorbachev cyborg, bam, they're on it. They're going to kill it, riot in the streets with torches and pitchforks. We won't be ruled by a cyborg, undead cyborg Mikhail Gorbachev. So that's why it has to be so veiled. That's why it has to be so confusing is so that by the time you go, holy cow, God totally called it, man, it's already too late for you to have changed the future. As specific as it gets is I think Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah is the guy who calls Cyrus, uh, king of the, the Persians as uh, being a guy to do things and to allow the, like, 200 years before the guy was born, 300 years before the guy was even born, was just like, oh yeah, Cyrus, the thing. Here's how reliable Jesus' prediction of 70 AD is. There are secular, uh, godless, atheist, heathen scientists, uh, scholars, whatever they want to call themselves, science scholarists, um, these godless pagans study the scriptures, and when they look at Matthew, they say, Matthew cannot have been written before 70 A.D. Because when you look at Matthew 25, Jesus clearly predicts the fall of Jerusalem at 70 A.D. And he can't have done that because that's impossible to predict the future. Therefore, Matthew has to have been written after the fall of Jerusalem sometime. Because of the accuracy of Jesus' prediction. He predicts it says it's going to happen, warns people so they can at least get themselves to safety, not actually change or thwart anything, but create a little better outcome for themselves. And it was so scary accurate, you didn't know what he was talking about in the moment. Nobody, like, what are you talking about? 
And then the Romans roll in, and everybody looks back at that and goes, He totally called it! So, it's awesome stuff. Um, but not everybody agrees that Matthew 25 is just about um, 70 AD. It's, it's really convincing, though. Um, so yeah, that should give you a springboard to read some of the Bible passages. Look, always read the Bible first. Always read all of the Bible passages. There are others. I'm. This isn't a comprehensive list. I think I missed some, and um, a lot more of the Book of Daniel. Ezekiel has some some future stuff. I think there's some references in Jeremiah as well. Uh, but these are a lot of the big ones. Uh, Peter gets it right in Second uh, Peter chapter three about uh, doing a thing, and he just says, "Live your life, guys." I'm gonna read it real quick. I forgot. I was gonna do that. Uh, I got it bookmarked already. It's called preparing, you guys. I prepared. Uh, there it is. There it is. It's really the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read the end here. Uh, starting in 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things which are, uh, in which are some things hard to understand. Yeah, even Peter was like, look, that Paul guy, he gets confusing sometimes. Don't sweat it, guys. Which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. Also, Peter and Paul were tight. Peter refers to the stuff Paul wrote as though it were scripture. Cool stuff. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen indeed. All right, don't take my word for it. Always read your Bible, pray every day, and you grow, grow, grow. I will see you next time. Godspeed.